Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Imagine betting hundreds of millions of dollars on sports over a 36-year period and winning every year, having a positive record every year. This guy, Billy Walters, he wrote the book, Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. He describes completely his method for gambling. He also talked about stocks. And he's got some crazy stories. He went to jail for insider trading. He hung out with Carl Icahn. He's hung out with the best poker players in the world. And just insane stories from the gambling world. And I always wanted to talk to him. He wrote this great book. I read the book and I said, we got to get this guy on the podcast. He came on. He's made hundreds of millions of dollars gambling. And I want to do that too. Here's Billy Walters. This isn't your average business podcast. And he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Billy, I really enjoyed the book, uh, Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. Thank you for coming on the podcast. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Really, really great book. I don't even know where to begin. You've had this almost movie-like story as a gambler, a businessman, um, so many people you've met from the poker world, the gambling world, the investing world. You spent time in prison, unfortunately. Again, I don't know where to begin, but it seems like one thing that fascinated me in the book was so many days you would make like $400,000, a million dollars, whatever in the morning, let's say playing golf or whatever, and then lose it in the evening and be broke and borrow money from Doyle Brunson just to get by. Like just describe one of those days. So I understand because I, I can't even imagine that kind of roller coaster. And I, I've been through a few roller coasters myself, but nothing, nothing like that. Well, well, James, uh, the reason I wrote the book is I wrote the book to share those experiences. You know, early on in my life, I've had addictions. I've had issues in my life, alcohol at one time. I was addicted to gambling at one time. And uh, and I wanted to share those experiences with, uh, with the world, so to speak, because, uh, you know, my life has been, you know, it's been ups, it's been downs. And, uh, and and you're right, uh, you know it, it hasn't always been it hasn't always been easy. But one of my biggest motivations for writing the book was to share my life with others to try to help them through similar experiences that they're dealing with. And uh, that, along with the fact that you know sports betting, I've been betting sports my entire life, and uh, and and you know to be able to take something that I was so addicted to and being able to turn it around and actually become pretty good at it, I wanted to share that. And then. I see sports betting is legal in the majority of the states in the United States now, and that's something that really was always kind of a lifelong dream. Uh, but, but although it's legalized, you've got millions and millions of people betting sports that have never bet sports before. So I wanted to share my story there, again, both with the good part of it and the bad part of it. And then I, then I wanted to put everything in the book, James, that I've learned about handicapping and sports betting my entire career. To you know, I wanted to share that with the public for the first time ever to help people are actually getting involved with that. And then I went through, you know, something in my life later on in life that I never dreamed that I would ever have to deal with, and that was going to prison. 
I walked into prison when I was 71 years old in Pensacola. And I uh, never dreamed I would ever have to deal with that. And well, while I was in prison, I dealt with the most difficult thing in my life. My daughter committed suicide. So once that happened, that was a defining moment for me. I knew I had to write this book. And uh, so when I got out of prison and I finally got in a position to work on this book and write the book, that was what motivated me to, to share my life story. And so, again, there's so many different entry points there. So first off, you you started, let's call it a legit business. You were selling cars. You could have really gone a traditional path. And like many people, or not many, but you could have built a bunch of dealerships, made a ton of money, tens of millions of dollars, sold the dealerships and retired a wealthy man. That's I don't want to say that's a traditional path, but that's a path many people in the car business have used and become very wealthy. And you were on your way to that. You were an excellent salesman. Obviously, you've got a, a personality that takes you to extremes and you were using it for cars. And then on top of that, you also became a really good golf player and was using your golf skills to gamble successfully on your own golf ability. And it took a turn. What, what happened? Well, James, you know, to kind of explain to you how really was brought into gambling, so to speak. Uh, at a very early age, I was introduced to gambling. And and I loved gambling from the day I was uh, introduced to it, any type of risk-taking. To me, it was, that's what, you know, it was, it was exciting to me, so to speak. When I got out of high school, you know, I'd gotten married while I was in high school. I had a child. And, and you know, my father died when I was a year and a half old. My mother left. And I was raised by a grandmother, and I really had no opportunity to go to college or get a formal education. So when I got out of high school, I had a had a daughter, and I had responsibility, and I had a couple of jobs, but I eventually got in the automobile business, and uh, I was very good at it. I realized early on that the whole key to it was staying busy the entire time, and uh, and and I did things that most people weren't doing back in those days, and as a result, like what? Well, you know, I was every every customer that I sold a car to uh, had a crisscross directory, and. And, you know, I got the identification, the names of all of their neighbors. And, you know, I would contact them either directly or I would send them a postcard and introduce myself and point out to them that I'd sold Mr. Smith his car and who I was. And we were running a sale and and I would encourage them to come down. Uh, I would, uh, and every customer that I sold a car to, I turned them into a referral source. Uh, I paid them, you know, a referral fee, a substantial referral fee. I stayed in touch with them. I created personal relationships with them. Yeah, I would go to the local newspaper each day, and people would have their cars and they're listed for sale, take over payments. Well, they weren't going to start walking. They were. They wanted to sell their car because they could no longer afford it. So I would bring them in, and I would sell them a less expensive car, take their car and trade, and uh, reduce their payments and. Uh, so I and then when when there was nothing else going on, I would just pick up the phone and start calling people with the same prefix as the number uh, as the area of Louisville that I was working in in South End of Louisville. I just cold call people and introduce myself, and sometimes they'd slam the phone on me. Sometimes, uh, you know, but sometimes they would engage in conversation. I would tell them, "Look, you know, we're running a sale." Uh, tell them who I was, where we were located. People would come in, and as a result, James, I sold a lot of cars and. Uh, and made a lot of money. And uh, the more money I made, then clearly the more money I spent, whether it be, you know, and my gambling habit is, you know, it, it just increased along with the amount of money that I was earning. Were you net winning or losing at that point in, in gambling? No, I, I was losing. I was a sucker. I mean, I, I, I worked very hard. I, my family lived well, but I never accumulated any money, as you noted. I worked for two different people, uh, worked for one guy for two years. His competitor hired me to run his place. I ran it for five years, and then I went in business myself for nine years. So I was in the automobile business for 16 years. Made a lot of money. I mean, in the 70s in the automobile business, James, when I was in business myself, I was making five, $600,000 a year. Never accumulated any money. I lost it all gambling. I mean, that, that would be the equivalent now with inflation of about $3 million a year, maybe even a little more. Yeah. Yeah, you, and in Louisville, Kentucky, it's not the most expensive place in the world. Like you were doing right. really well for yourself. I mean, taxes were pretty high then, but you know, I'm sure you must have been gambling quite a bit to not really accumulate tens of millions of dollars at that point. 
Well, I never accumulated any money, really. I, uh, what I did was I lost it all gambling. Either, uh, you know, I, I, had a, I had an issue with alcohol at the time. I didn't realize I had an issue because I didn't drink that often. But when I did drink is when I did all the dumb, destructive things that I did. I, I, when I started drinking, I, I drank until I got hammered. And then uh, my personality changed. I became aggressive. Uh, but more importantly, my judgment in regards to things I would bet on or gamble on it was it was terrible because all I wanted to do was gamble. I was looking to take the best of it, but if I couldn't take the best of it, I, I'd take the worst of it. I just wanted to gamble, and and as a result, uh, you know, uh, I, I lost a lot of money. I mean, the as an example, I I would work six days a week in the automobile business. I play golf with guys on Sunday who practice all week, or I would work at I'd get off work at the car dealership at nine at night. I'd go to a bar and uh, I'd stop. I started drinking the boys, started playing poker about 12, and I would play sometimes all night. I, sometimes I would play until 6, 7 in the morning, go home, take a shower, uh, put on a fresh set of clothes and go back to work. And I was betting sports. I, you know, I had, I had a goal sheet and a schedule, and I bet on almost every game there was. And as a result, all the money I made working, I lost gambling. But let me ask you, like, after, let's say even after a short time of this, wouldn't you say to yourself, okay, there's a skill to poker. I need to study it. Maybe even, I don't know, there were a few books out there. There was, you know, your, your buddy Doyle uh, wrote Super System. There were other books out there. Were you getting a sense that I need to improve? Or were you thinking to yourself, I was good already. I just was made, I, the other guy got lucky. Or like, were you, what, what was happening in your mind psychologically that, you know, unless you really wanted to lose all the money, you must have recognized that you needed to improve. No, I definitely needed. I knew I needed to improve. I mean, the uh, but I always believed, James, that if I could focus hundred percent of my time in in being a professional gambler, that I I could be successful. Now, most of my friends, you know, they 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 thought it was just the opposite. It was the equivalent of a drug addict, you know, being turned over uh, to a drugstore, so to speak. But uh, I always believed that if I could focus on full time, I could be successful. Golf. I didn't take up golf until I was 20 years old. Uh, really, you know, where I was born and raised, James, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a golf course until I was like 19 years old. And then as far as poker was concerned, you know, whatever I learned playing poker, you know, I learned it the hard way. And after I got out of the automobile business and I became a full-time professional gambler, uh, that's when I started being successful. And uh, there were a number of things that happened, which I've shared in the book. Eventually, I quit drinking. And that was a major turning point in my life is when I quit drinking. And uh, the, the other thing that happened, James, is I, I got married. And uh, I, matter of fact, our anniversary will be this week. We'll be married 47 years. And Wow, congratulations. I, I married an incredible, incredible uh, uh, lady, a partner. I mean, that was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. And then there were a number of things that took place after that, which, again, I've shared in detail in the book. That took place. Uh, you know, I quit drinking. I quit smoking. There were things that just took place, and uh, and and once I I quit drinking, then clearly it was clear sailing. After that, I I quit making dumb decisions, both personally and business wise, and and then I became fairly successful at the things I was involved with. After that, and you were already, if correct me if I'm wrong, you were already a professional gambler when you quit drinking. You were in Las Vegas. Uh, when you quit drinking and you had had a bad night at at Binion's Casino. By the way, quick story. I once stayed with Jack Binion for a day and he's like, I'm going to take you to my my favorite restaurant. And I thought, this is going to be it. I'm going with Jack Binion in Las Vegas to his favorite restaurant. It's probably some like secret golden key kind of restaurant where all the hot shots are, are at. He goes to Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Just like right, we wait in line for a half hour. He's a yeah. billionaire. Like we're waiting in line for a half hour, and he's like, yeah. "Oh, get the pasta," and it was great. But it yeah. was it was a funny thing. But anyway, you you yeah. you were already in Las Vegas. You were in that life, so you were obviously on your quest of becoming a professional gambler. But what would you say turned you from net losing to net winning? Well, there were a number of things that took place, and again, I shared those things in the book. When I first moved to Las Vegas, uh, again, most of my friends in Louisville thought I essentially had no chance to be successful and handicapping myself. If it were to have been someone else other than me, I would have thought they had no chance either. 
when I moved to Las Vegas, uh, I, I knew a lot of people there before I moved there because I've been going to, I've been spending quite a bit of time in Las Vegas. I moved there in 82. I started spending quite a bit of time there in the mid 70s. And I, and I actually started playing in, in Jack Binion's uh, professional, uh, well, you know, his, his golf tournament. Uh, and that's where I met these people. So when I moved there, I knew Doyle, I knew Billy Baxter, I knew Chip Reese, I knew Buggy Pearson, I knew Bobby Baldwin. I mean, I knew everyone there. You knew them just by playing poker with them at the tables? Because, I mean, these are the most famous poker players in history now. Well, I played golf with them. I played poker with them. And uh, and, and uh, that's primarily where I, I knew them, from, mostly from golf, but some poker. So when I moved there, uh, Doyle Brunson was actually my first partner. Uh, I moved there. I was broke. When I moved uh, there from Louisville, uh, matter of fact, I was a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt. And uh, I was betting sports, and and uh, I was convinced I could win. And uh, I went to Billy Baxter first, who's one of my best friends in the world. And Billy graciously, graciously uh, declined, which, uh, and, you know, he kind of tells a story today. And uh, like I said, I don't blame him for declining because at the time, I was a guy that, you know, I was a really dangerous gambler, and I could win a lot of money. But I was also at this issue with, uh, I wasn't a great money manager. And then when I, again, I drank. And when I drank, I just gave my money away. So anyway, Doyle ended up being my first partner. The first week uh, we bet on sports, I know we lost over a million dollars in 82, which was a lot of money in 82. Doyle almost went in shock. I mean, he was a big gambler, but losing a million dollars on one weekend betting on sports, especially something that wasn't his expertise, almost put him in the shock. How, how did you feel? Like, like I think, I mean, I would go in <laughs> shock losing a million dollars sports betting, and that's the dollar's worth, you know, much less now. Like, that was like the equivalent of like three to five million dollars losing in a week. And... Yeah. What was your bankroll that you could so easily lose a million? And, and you don't really discuss your emotions as much that weekend. Uh -huh. you, you describe Doyle going in shock, but not yourself. Well, you got to picture this. I lived in Las Vegas. I was broke. I had no money. I was 200000 in debt. And uh, I didn't look like, you know, Billy Baxter had already declined on being my partner. I had Doyle as a partner. And the very first week out of the shoot, we lost a million bucks. So, I thought to myself, oh, man, this isn't going to be good. Well, fortunately, Doyle, he hung on. And uh, the next week, we won the money back, and we were 240000 a winner. And Doyle said, I can't take this anymore. He said, this is too much. So he quit. When he quit, you know, I had half 120000 Half of two forty, I had 120000 But Chip Reese became my partner. And at the time, Chip was the best all-around poker player in the world. But Chip was also a great, great money manager. And that was something that I really didn't have much of at the time. I was a very poor money manager. And by money manager, you, you essentially mean don't put 100% of your money on the Cardinals this weekend. You know, you mentioned put 1% to 3% of your bankroll on any one bet. Right. And Chip Reese was known with this in, in poker as well. Like he was very good at understanding the math behind how much you should bet on each bet. Yeah, but not only that, I think Chip had been in, in Las Vegas for a period of time. And Las Vegas back then, frankly, the car rooms, there was a lot of cheating going on. And I think he'd been cheated so many times. And, and I think what happened is, you know, if he was in a card game and he felt like things were on the square, uh, he would quit. I think that had a lot to do with everybody being a good money manager. But it worked perfectly for him and our partnership because... Uh, we had a money management system. He put up X number of dollars, and we were going to bet anywhere from 1% to 3% of our bankroll based upon the size of the bet. And that's what we did. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting 
and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important. And I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. What do you feel was your edge back then? You discuss later in the book your system, essentially. But from, from the beginning, I always get the sense, you're, and, and this is true for every great gambler, they're looking for an edge, like a reason why they could not only win the game, but beat the house and the VIG and the taxes and so on. Like you had to have a really good edge to, and everybody's looking for an edge. So what made you special? Well, it's all about value. And, and uh, regardless of whether you're playing a hand of poker and, you know, the pot's got 10 grand in it, and there's one to come and, you know, you, you put everybody on a hand, you do an evaluation and, and that's going to tell you whether it's worth the investment and calling that better or not. Sports is the same thing. All I do, James, is I make a, a line on every game. A prediction the same as the odds maker does. And uh, I bet my opinion against whatever the line is out there, if there's enough of a differential, I'll make a bet. The larger the differential, the larger bet I'll make. I mean, and, and I know laying 11 to 10, there has to be a certain amount of differential before I have a mathematical advantage. And that's really all I do, nothing more, nothing less. And I started off with a guy in the late 70s. His name was Michael Kent. He had developed the first computer software program to handicap sports with. And at the time, we had an enormous advantage. And uh, I realized after about three years that that advantage was eroding and that if I didn't continue to reinvent myself, I was going to be out of business. Well, I recruited essentially over the next five years, I recruited another six Michael Kent, so to speak. So I had seven different people independent of each other that were providing me with independent sources of information. They didn't know each other. They didn't communicate with each other. The only person that they knew was me. And as a result, you know, I spend millions of dollars every year in in research and development. That's the reason I've been able to stay out of the game. That's the reason I still beat sports today. It's gotten more competitive. It's gotten more difficult. But it's like anything, whether you're, if you're investing in stocks, if you're investing in real estate or anything else, you know, if you can't continue to find, you know, an advantage, you're going to, you know, you're going to be out of business. And that's how I did what I did. And that's what I continue to do today. It's such an interesting thing because I'm assuming what Michael Kent and these other people did, and Michael Kent is the the founder of uh, what you call it, the computer group in the, in the book. He basically 
would take statistics. Like if you had, what are the odds this team beats this team and it's raining outside and it's the home advantage, he would have a bunch of factors, I'm assuming, and statistically figure out what the odds were given past history, what the odds were that one team would beat another team and by how much. You know, obviously, as more people do that, advantage erodes because the line takes all of that into account. The, the, the odds makers take all that into account. Now, this is 40 years, 50 years later, you have hedge funds with PhDs, thousands of PhDs doing similar types of things with sports betting. How do you compete with that kind of manpower? Well, I mean, frankly, I, I think, you know, uh, we're a little bit better at it than they are. I've been doing this a long, long time. My team, some of my teams have been with me for over 30 years. Uh, I don't exactly have a bunch of dummies working for me. I've got one guy graduated number one in his class at Caltech. I got another guy that, you know, he was the head of an economics department. He was the chair of it at a major university. Uh, but there's a lot more to betting sports than just the quantitative side of it, James. And that's where I think maybe I have a little bit of advantage over what we'll call it the strictly the tech guys. There's a qualitative side of betting sports also that you can't, you know, as an example, if you've got, you know, an issue with a team and you got morale, there's really not a slide rule you can go to for that. Evaluating injuries, I mean, we all generally do this thing the same way. You know, you've got players and they have values, and uh, if they're injured and they're playing, you have to make an adjustment for that value. If they're out, okay, and there's a backup, there's a replacement, okay, what's the differential between that starter and, and the backup? And how is that going to, you know, and it's going to change from opponent to opponent. Some opponents, you know, if a key guy's out and you got a backup, it's not as important as this, maybe another opponent. You can't go to a slide room for that. There's there's a lot of things that have to be done qualitatively that, you know, the nerds don't totally understand. So uh, you're right. Uh, as far as the quantitative side of things are concerned, it's, uh, you know, you got a lot of smart people doing the same thing, you know, uh, putting a handicapping system together. I've shared everything that I know, 100%. I didn't hold one thing back about sports handicapping, about sports betting. Another thing, James, that's is really super-duper important and almost as important as the handicapping aspect of this is a betting strategy. And a lot of the guys that know how to make numbers, they don't know how to bet. You know, they take bad numbers. They bet at the wrong time. And the other big, the biggest issue that most of them have, they don't know how, you know, they can't bet much money. They don't know how to go out and bet several million dollars on a ball game. And that's something that, that I know how to do. That's the reason that I've won so much more money than anyone else. Jack Binion, whom you mentioned, uh, I had the great pleasure of, you know, they had a Sports Gamblers Hall of Fame this year in Las Vegas, the very first one. And uh, I had the great pleasure of Jack introducing me to that. And he made a comment, and the truth is the truth. I'm not, I don't want to come across here as somebody who's being a, a real braggart here, but the truth of the matter is, where I won hundreds of millions of dollars betting sports, you know, I would say that the guy second, maybe I doubt if he won 20. And there's a reason for that. And the reason was I was a, I put together a network, James, where I was able to bet millions of dollars on a ball game where most people could only bet maybe, a, say, a couple hundred thousand. So there were a number of other things we kind of did over the years with other people. I had an office in Panama City, Panama. When I closed it up in 2016 to prepare for the trial in the Southern District of New York, I had 1,600 accounts in that office. And those were 1,600 accounts that we used around the world. None of them were in the U.S. They were all outside the U.S. And then I had an office in Las Vegas that I had about 150 accounts. And uh, that's, that's another part of what I did that was quite a bit different than most other people, most of these other people today that are betting on sports and throughout the years, again, they weren't, they were never able to bet a significant amount of money on sports. What's the benefit other than obviously betting more money makes or loses more money. What's the benefit of having so many different accounts and were you able to like move the line or were you able to make more bets? So to diversify appropriately or. Well, the benefit is, is you're able to bet a larger volume, a larger amount of money. And then more importantly is uh, the next thing, James, is a lot of these bookmakers, when you beat them out of their money, you know, they'll close your account down. They'll throw you out. 
Well, you know, the whole key is not to get thrown out, to keep the account, and not only to keep the account, but to be able to bet them more money than, you know, than their posted limits. And there's there's a number of things that you do in order to achieve that. And a lot of the bookmakers, it's real simple. If you beat them, they're going to throw you out. And there's only so many bookmakers. So uh, if you, you know, you'll look around, next thing you know, you don't have anyone to bet with if, if, you, know, if you went on a, on a continual basis. And I did that for 36 consecutive years. And, uh, and that's really kind of what separated me from other people doing what I do. You know, when the line first comes out on Sunday night or, say, Monday morning, there are people who can, can beat that line. I mean, but they can only bet a small amount of money. Okay, once the line, once you're into a Tuesday or Wednesday and that line, you know, has been, been bad and, and it's basically solid, the number of people that can win after that, it's less than 1% of the people who are betting sports can win consistently. You know, over the years, I've seen a lot of guys come along and, you know, they're successful for a year or two years or maybe three years or guys will come along where all they do is bet college basketball or, or all they do is bet certain conferences. You know, a lot of them, you know, two, three, four years, five years, then you never hear from them. They can't win anymore because they've lost whatever whatever advantage they had is gone, you know, because essentially the public's caught up with them, you know. And so the benefit of being able to bet a lot more money is that you could look for advantages in many more places, not just bet one conference or one sport or whatever. What's the actual percentage benefit of what advantage does it give you? Again, other than that, you, if you bet more, you can make more. What advantage does betting more money give you? Because it seems like it's harder to be flexible with, with more money. Well, it, it is much harder, but it just, it just really, it's just as simple. I mean, I could bet, let's say I could bet on, let's say Monday morning, I could maybe bet a grand total of 60, 80,000 or 100,000. And let's say I had a 6% advantage. Okay. So I'm about 100 grand. I'm going to get a $6,000 return on my money. Okay. But let's say come Saturday, that game, I bet a million dollars on it, I get a 3% return. Uh, you know, so did you rather have 30000 or did you rather have 6000 So to me, it, it was, you know, it was all about volume and return, nothing more, nothing less. Uh, you know, uh, the more money I could invest, the greater amount of money I could earn. I mean... Uh, so like you could bet on Monday, but you could also bet on Saturday as the line changes. You could do things to diversify. Well, the other thing I didn't want... I, I didn't want anyone to know what I was betting on also, James, because I had people over the years who, who tried to bribe people who worked for me. A lot of the bookmakers we bet with, the clerks who worked in there, they were being paid to tell people who we were betting on. And what happens, uh, if I bet on a game and the line moves too much, there's no value. I mean, I can't bet, you know, they, they shut me out. I, there's uh, So there's nothing. And then, you know, uh, contrary to public opinion, you know, I want to see the bookmakers win. I don't want to see the bookmakers lose. Uh, anyone that was involved with me directly or indirectly, uh, I want them to win. But I'm not looking for someone to steal my information and go out and beat bookmakers out of a lot of money with it because nothing good nothing good is going to come out of, out of that for me. All the bookmakers are going to do is reduce these limits or either go out of business if he loses too much money. So over the years, I mean, I've had people go through our trash. I've had people tap my phones. I've had people bribe my employees. I've had everything in the world, people trying to steal our information. So, you know, between creating 1,600 accounts, maintaining 1,600 accounts, and keeping people from stealing your information, uh, and then handicapping and betting on sports and, and winning consistently, uh, I've been a busy guy. You know, it seems like you're you're in a it's a dangerous field gambling, right? There's a lot of organized crime. There's a lot of violent figures. Like you say, you had people wiretapping your phones, stealing your trash, paying off your employees. Like, how do you keep sane in all that? You're you're juggling a lot, and you know, focusing on the betting. At what points were you scared? Well, well, James, the, and I want to set the record straight as far as organized crime is concerned, as far as you know, at least as far as what I know, and I think I know quite a bit. There's been no organized crime involved in sports betting or, or gambling, period, since Tony Spilatro uh, was in Las Vegas. You know, that was a guy who was killed in the movie Casino. Uh, once he was killed and he was gone, I think any influence that organized crime had in sports betting, I think that went out the window with it also. And their involvement was primarily booking sports anyway. You know, that's one good thing about legalized sports betting today. It's totally transparent. 
the people involved in it have been vetted. They've been given a license. You got jobs have been created, you know, taxes are being collected and people are able to bet on sports, which is great. I think that's all good. But I don't think there's any organized crime uh, involved in, in sports betting uh, or sports bookmaking for that fact. And I don't think there's been in, in, any involved for a long, long period of time. And as these, like we discussed with gambling, how, how sport, with sports betting, how there's a lot more quants out there, but you have this also this qualitative side just from your experience. I guess you have a network of people who tell you when, oh, the team's morale is low today or whatever. Like you must have a, a network of information that you tap into. I guess a similar thing, you know, this relates to when you later went to prison, but with stock trading, stock trading is really just a form of gambling. <laughs> and, you know, you can use statistics, which many people do. There's all sorts of quantitative traders. And then there's the qualitative where you still need an edge. You still need some way to say to yourself, I know more information than other people. I'm not talking about insider information, but you need to have maybe you go to industry conferences or you know people who do, or you know people at the company, you know what other big investors are investing, like you were friends with with Carl Icahn, you know, and this is where you started to get in trouble. There's uh, you know, can you talk about the, the case that was against you? Like what what happened? Sure. I've been investing in stocks for a number of years, you know, 15 years prior to this case ever coming about. I'd invested in hundreds and hundreds of stocks, not just a few. And the stock that I went to prison with, I've been investing in that stock for 10 years. So Dean Foods. it wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't like a stock that I just happened to buy and made a few bucks on and then I ended up having a problem. And it's a long, long, long story. And that's one of the primary reasons I wrote this book was to give the details of that because, you know, you can never do that in, in an interview as much as you'd like to be able to go into details. We'd be here for a while explaining it. But, you know, to me, stock investing, frankly, is child's play compared to betting on sports and winning consistently. But, I, but all, all stock guys do, whether it be Carl Icahn, whom you mentioned, or Warren Buffett, or David Tepper, or uh, there are a lot of people that I respect uh, in, in that world. But all they do is they do an assessment of a publicly traded company. They come up with what they believe the value of that company is. If it's underpriced, they're going to buy that stock in that company. If it's overpriced, they may short it. I do the same thing. I mean, I, I'm invested in the stock market substantially today. And, and again, they're doing the same thing that I'm doing in sports. They, they do an evaluation of a publicly traded company. And uh, so you have Mark Cuban on your show. Mark's a very, very smart guy. That's all anyone does uh, with any type of a business or whether it be public or private. You do an evaluation and you invest your money, you bet your money based upon what you, if you feel like there's value there. And if you're right, you know. But the thing about the stock market, there's things that can happen in the stock market that have nothing to do with an individual stock that can either positively or either negatively affect it. I mean, you can have geopolitical issues that come up in the stock that could end up devastating the stock market. You may own a great stock or great company. So you're not only investing in that particular stock, you've got to have a pretty good idea you know, how, what's going on around the world and, and things that could happen that could have a negative or a positive effect on the stock you're invested in. But it, again, it's all the same thing, James. It's identifying, finding value, and betting your money one way or the other. With sports betting, I could see how you had confidence, you had an edge because you had the quantitative side, which had a known statistical edge, and you had the qualitative side. You had You had a network of people with information, you knew a lot about every sport and game and team and player. So you you had both the qualitative and quantitative confidence that you had an edge. How do you build now confidence that you have an edge in the stock market or with any particular stock? I'm a contrarian investor. I mean, anytime, you know, the majority of the money that I made uh, outside of sports betting, I'm buying things when other people are selling and I'm, I'm selling when other people are buying. I mean, that's it's just pretty, it's true. And a lot of times you'll see stocks get in my opinion, way oversold or way overbought, and that creates opportunity. You know, when we had a financial downturn in 2008, 9, and 10, I bought 22 automobile dealerships. Uh, at that time, I mean, no one wanted to buy automobile dealerships. Everyone wanted to sell them. So I bought 22, went in, and uh, we turned them around. And to me, it's just really that simple. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for value in stocks also. I mean, I mean, 
when stocks are trading at a certain multiple and you don't see a lot of room for a particular broker, so to speak, or, or if you if you on the other side of the coin, you see a company that's poorly managed, poorly ran, got a real, you know, got a bad CEO and and the stock is underperforming. Uh, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example, Walgreens right now. I mean, Walgreens is stocks, you know, at an all, all-time low. And, uh, you know, the CEO, she just left and they're in the process of, trying to locate a CEO. They've got other issues. I mean, you've got everybody, everyone's, you know, familiar with these in-store thefts. And of course they've got, they, they, they've got a, a number of their stores in the UK and what have you. But I think that's a stock that, uh, you know, potentially has got a tremendous, you know, amount of room, you know, on the upside. And uh, so, okay, everybody's dumping that stock and buying it. So uh, am I right or am I wrong? But when I look at, you know, and I look at the revenue, I look at the balance sheet, and and I look at, I mean, the most conservative uh, analysis that I can do as far as, you know, what the PE is going to look like going forward. Stock looks really, really cheap to me, so I bought it. I mean, and on the other hand, you know, stocks that I own that I feel like get too pricey, I'm going to sell them. Am I right all the time? Nope. Am I wrong all the time? Nope. But the same thing goes with sports. You know, I win 57 or something games that I bet on, James, but I bet on a lot of games. I don't. I bet on, you know, 30, 35, 40 games a week. So when you, you know, you, you can do the math, you know, and the amount of money I invest and the return I get on a weekly basis is still a pretty good business. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Throughout these decades of successful gambling and a successful career, you've obviously been the subject of many investigations, particularly the issue of whether you were a bookmaker or not, and you had to convince the FBI, you know, you had to explain to the FBI the difference between bookmaking and making bets. What really finally got you was this insider trading one. And, you know, at age 71, you actually had to go to jail. Were you in a state of panic at this point or what was going on in your head? Well, you know, first of all, uh, I'll address the things with the sports betting. Uh, when, when I organized a group of organized bettors in 1982 in Las Vegas, uh, the FBI or law enforcement had never seen a group of organized bettors. The only thing they'd ever seen was organized bookmakers, and the majority of them were involved with organized crime. So uh, I had about 30 guys in Las Vegas. We were betting sports all over town. We were winning a lot of money. And uh, there was an FBI agent who had been out of the academy for a couple months, and uh, he started this investigation under the belief that we were organized bookmakers that were affiliated with organized crime. Uh, put wiretaps on our phones for a couple months. No one ever took a bet. All we did was bet. But they still raided uh, 13, 14 places throughout the United States, the confiscated records and what have you. After they got them, they realized we weren't bookmakers, and all we were doing was betting. Four years, 11 months, two weeks later, two weeks before the statute of limitations ran out, I got indicted in 1990 in Las Vegas, and I was charged, believe it or not, James, in the gaming capital of the world. I was charged with being part of a criminal conspiracy conspiring to bet on ball games. 
Now, stop and think about that for a moment. The majority of of the states in the United States, sports betting is now legal. I was indicted in Las Vegas, Nevada in 1990 for betting on ball games. Now, I went to court. They indicted my wife also. I saw my wife being taken out of the front of our home with handcuffs on and leg irons for betting on ball games. And we went to court, and, uh, of course, we exonerated uh, the, the jury uh, and the newspapers. They basically ran the FBI agent out of town. I mean, it was uh, when 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 the facts came out in court. What it was all about? It was it was it was a travesty. It was a travesty. It was a travesty for everyone involved, including the government. And then after that, I was indicted three more times uh, by the state uh, prosecutor for the same thing: betting on ball games. Nothing more, nothing less. Every time that was thrown out of court, and uh, and but over the years, I spent millions of dollars in legal fees, and you can imagine, you know, what it put my family through. Or you know, that's the reason I'm so excited today to see legalized sports betting. How how did your wife and you survive the strain of that? Like she, you, I mean, not that you anybody gets used to being indicted and threatened with jail, but it seems like you were a little bit more comfortable than most at being able to surf these ups and downs in, in gambling based on your experience. I, I, you know, you're, you know, you mentioned in the book, your wife was shocked at the thought that, that she might have to go to jail. How did you guys survive and, and deal with it personally? Well, we, we knew, James, we weren't doing anything wrong. I mean, we had a very, very strong uh, concrete belief. We knew we were not doing anything wrong. And at the end of the day, that's, that's the reason that, you know, we continue to do what we were doing. You know, we both knew that we weren't doing anything ethically or morally wrong. And as a matter of fact, when I got indicted in 1990, you know, and the, the FBI, they indicted my wife also. And it, they strictly, they were just trying to blackmail me into or force me into pleading guilty to something. They were going to let her out of the indictment. That's the only reason she was indicted. But when we met with, a, with, a, with, a, with our attorney, and it's, again, we share all of this in the book, but we, uh, my you know, my wife is actually the one. I was ready to plead guilty to anything to get her dropped out of the diaper. I couldn't. The thought of my wife spending one night in jail was something I could. I, I, there's no way I could have lived with that. But she is the one that says, "No, we are not going. You're not going to plead guilty to anything. We were. If if, if they're going to put you in, in this country in jail for betting on sports, she said. Then, uh, the, you know, she said, I just can't believe it. So we both decided. And and we got indicted. We went to court and sat next, next to each other in federal court and uh, uh, every day. And then, uh, of course, we were exonerated. But well, uh, what's the uh, law but that the they? But the idea and the thought of, of of somebody that was going to indict you and for betting on ball games, but they indicted me for something. It's not even against the law. I mean, betting on ball games is not illegal. That was what was such a big joke about it. If you were to read. The local newspaper, the Review Journal, they had a big front page story. This is like Alice in Wonderland. Uh, they had mistakenly in, indicted a guy by the name of Proctor Hawkins, who was a bookmaker. He was actually taking bets and violating the law. They had, they had indicted him and charged him with being a better. His lawyer went to the court before the judge and, and filed a motion to have his case thrown out because he was wrongfully charged. So they had to throw his case out. A guy who was actually violating the law, and and they were prosecuting people who were betting on sports who were not violating the law. I mean, it was literally, uh, it was, it, it, I mean, it was hilarious unless you were part of it. And uh, but uh, it, it was, it was just bottom line is it was a mistake. It was something that happened that shouldn't have happened. You know, again, law enforcement didn't understand at the time the difference between betting and bookmaking, and then uh, as as happens a lot of times, they spent a lot of money and resources, and then someone made a, a decision at the, very, at the very end, we're going to go forward with this indictment, and uh, that's what they did. And uh, But the outcome was we were exonerated, and uh, but unfortunately, I had to go through that four times in Las Vegas. I had to go through it four times. Uh, but, you know. And so, okay, so then when they, it seemed like they had a thing for you because then they, you know, did the thing with the insider trading, which is which is something that's notoriously difficult to, you know, there's so many gray areas and it's notoriously difficult to to pin down, but you got indicted and sentenced and 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 so on, and you spent some time in jail and you know, and like you mentioned, your 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 daughter uh, 
you know, you found out your daughter committed suicide while you were in jail. Like what was, what was going on? What was going on with her? What was going on in, in your mind? And maybe describe that, that story. It's a sad story. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, I, I tell this story in complete detail in the book, and that's the reason that I, I wanted Armand Catan to work with me. I know Armand's, he worked for 60 Minutes for a number of years. He's a great investigative reporter. And to tell this story and to tell it in detail, you know, I needed, I needed some assistance for that. And uh, you're right. I mean, I was either under investigation or indicted for over 20 years. And then what happened is, what I realized is, is, you know, there's a little thing, I think, uh, called a vendetta, so to speak, and I was right in the middle of that. And then what had happened in New York initially, uh, I, I was being investigated along with Carl Icahn. And that investigation went on for three years, and there was nothing to it, and basically it was over. Uh, and the agent who was leading that case was a guy named David Chavez. He was the supervisor in charge of the FBI White Collar Crime Unit in New York. And he ended up being a, a you know a rogue FBI agent. I mean, later on, they in our case, they found out he did a bunch of illegal, unethical things. He was suspended from the FBI. Uh, and again, it's all in, it's I, I can't explain all of it in an interview. That's the reason I wrote the book. But yeah. it's really truly unbelievable. I mean, when you know all the facts. And uh, but but I'd owned this stock off and all for ten years, and uh, and it's a. It, it was a company called Dean Foods. I ultimately ended up being indicted for uh, buying this stock. And uh, that's what I went to prison for. I served 31 months in Pensacola in prison. Uh, the only reason I got out after 31 months was because of COVID. And uh, and the only positive thing that happened in there was I mentored a couple dozen men. But while I was in there, my daughter unfortunately committed suicide. She had an opioid uh, addiction and she had had it for a period of time. And and when, you know, if I'm as sure as I am talking to you, James, if I hadn't been in prison, my daughter would be alive. And uh, because if she and I could have communicated, which we, you know, had over the years when she had issues, uh, we were always able to deal with these things. But because I couldn't communicate with her, uh, uh, that's, you know, she ended up committing suicide while I was in there. But again, uh, I keep going back to, to the book because the only way that you really, you know, the, the, I, it's it's in detail in the book, everything that you've talked about. Uh, all the facts are in there. It's not a, you know, he said, she said deal. It's, uh, you know, it's a fact-based book, as you know. You've read it. And uh, there's it's filled with nothing but transcripts, court documents, uh, and everything that I'm, you know, alleging here. It's, it's all in the book. And it'd be very easy for someone to read it, come to their own conclusion one way or the other. Yeah, no, it's a it's a riveting book. It's a great story. I really encourage people to read it. Plus, you do have to spend several chapters outlining your entire betting system, as you said earlier. If someone were to, let's say someone's 20 years old and they read this and they're inspired and they want to, you know, gambling's legal everywhere. There's not the same issues you dealt with back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and so on. Uh, if someone wanted to be a gambler, how would they think to themselves? How can I come up with my with my edge? You know, there's there's thousands, tens of thousands of people trying to be, you know, gamblers. How do you how do you formulate coming up with an edge? What's the, what's the strategy you would use now if you were 20 years old? Well, everything that I know about it, 100 of it's in the book. Okay, uh, I, I mean, I did not leave one thing out. Ten years ago, James, I wouldn't have sold this information for 20 million dollars. I'm 77 years old. It's my legacy. Uh, and it's it's something that uh, I wanted to leave for sports gamblers in the sports world. And but the person you've described, uh, what I would advise if they're going to try to pursue it as as a professional, then okay, fine, go take a look at you know I've explained to you how to build your program. I've explained to you how to do everything that, you, that there is to do. Now, if you're someone who's got a normal job, or you're someone who's going to do this, you know, and you're not going to pursue it that way. My advice to you is, look, you want to bet on sports, betting on sports is a lot of fun. Look at it like it's a recreation. You're going to lose your money. Uh, take the amount of money that you can afford to lose and uh, and no more. Now, I put a basic betting strategy in there that, that will give you a chance to win. And I've explained in there, I, I put all kinds of charts in there that shows the public for the first time ever, they're going to know, okay, this is exactly what a half point's worth. This is exactly how the money line compares a point spread. These are what the exact odds are. 
these are the various factors that go into all these games. So what, you know, regardless of what your level of sports better you are, you're going to learn a lot just reading this. But my advice to the average person is don't look at this as a get rich quick scheme because it's not. It's something you're probably going to lose your money doing. And it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a recreation. Take whatever you can afford. But do give yourself a chance to win. You know, you don't want to have one bookmaker. You need to have, you know, four, five, six, as many as you possibly can. You got to take good prices. You, you know, you got to have a betting strategy. You got to have a money management system, which, again, it's all laid out in the book. But uh, but don't get involved in this think you're going to get rich betting sports because you're not. It's uh, If you take that approach to it, you know, you can have some of the same problems that I had as a young man. And, and I can tell you how that one goes. You're going to start off, you're going to get loser. Then you're going to have this little conversation with yourself mentally. As soon as I get even, I'm going to quit. Well, even if you do get lucky and get even, you're not going to quit. It's going to, you're going to even be more fired up to bet. And, and then you're going to go down that road. And, uh, and that was road that I went down thinking that I was going to get rich quick. Uh, that's, that's not the case. Now, how I, I came from where I was at to where I've gotten to today and the success that I've shared, uh, the odds on that are probably 20 million to one. And if you read the book, you'll see the various things that happened in my life that, that, uh, that I dealt with. But uh, again, bet on sports, have some fun, put up whatever amount of money you can afford to lose, figuring you're going to lose it. And, uh, and, but if you, if you really want to be a pro and you really want to try to pursue this, and you've got that kind of passion for it. I have an advanced masterclass in my book that explains to you exactly what I do and exactly how I do it. So they're both there. Do you think there, there will be new areas of betting? Like, let's say political betting. There's not really a market for political betting at the moment, but maybe in the future there will be. Do you think there's ways potentially in new areas of betting to get easier to get an edge? There could be. I mean... If you could bet any serious money on all elections, I, I would have an interest in that myself, but I don't know if anybody can bet any serious money on it. I'm not anything to make it worthwhile. I do think there's a, a tremendous amount of potential growth in sports uh, bookmaking. These publicly traded companies that, uh, that are licensed today, they're great internet marketers. They're not really, they don't know, as far as the art of bookmaking is concerned, the guys 20, 25 years ago were, I think, much smarter. I, I think they knew a lot more about bookmaking than these guys do today. Uh, I think there's a, a, a big market out there that these people haven't, uh, haven't pursued. Now, in order to do that, there's going to, th- there's, there's going to be some things that have to happen. A taxation with sports betting is ridiculous in this country. Uh, the people who got, who, who got sports betting legalized I don't know if they didn't realize it. It was an oversight or whatever, but they've got to go back and fix this. Sports betting today, I'll give you an example, James. You know, if you bet on 50% winner, you're going to get 95.4% of your money back. So betting slot machines, you're going to get between 96 and 98%. So it's a tough way to win to start with. But if you happen to win any money betting sports in this country, you have to pay ordinary income on the winnings, plus you have to pay your state taxes. Now, you, and it's the only thing that I know of in the IRS tax code. You cannot carry forward a loss from one year to the next. Now, if it were to be treated like, say, Wall Street, and, uh, and, and there, were be a, there were to be a capital gains uh, option or something there, like you, do, you do that, you're going to attract, you know, more sophisticated people that, you know, Smart, smart people aren't going to bet large amounts of money on sporting events because of, again, what I just pointed out to you. Okay, if you win, you're going to pay over half your money in taxes. If you lose, you can't carry forward a loss from one year to the next. Okay, that law has to be changed where you can carry forward a loss. If they do that and, and they treat the taxation similar to what they treat Wall Street, there's a tremendous amount of room for growth. You'll have a lot of people who are in the and different sectors of, of the United States, wealthy people that are bet on sports. It okay, although they, although they've got an uphill, you know, uphill road to travel, it's they still got a chance. The way it is today, beat, beating sports number one is is next. It's it's very very difficult. And if you do win, you're going to get half your money to the government. If you lose, you can't curse for a loss. If if this law gets amended, the IRS is 
they're going to collect a lot more money in taxes because they're not going to collect any today. But what I'm really afraid of, and it hasn't happened yet, but I think it's going to happen like any day, every one of these publicly held books, or these sports books, the IRS has everyone's information. They know who you are. I mean, they know everything. So you take a, a small better, uh, or you take any kind of better. Give an example. Let's say, okay, let's say you lose ten grand in 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 December betting on bowl games or playoff games, okay, and you win ten grand in January. Well, you got to pay tax on the ten grand you won. You can't you can't carry forward at loss. Which uh, the money you won in December it's ridiculous. Now, like I said, these public trading companies. The guys are running them today know a lot about marketing. The people that they've hired as a whole are running sports books. They really don't, they don't understand the art of bookmaking. And uh, so I think if the right person were to get involved with it, I've never met Mark Cuban personally. I've, I've seen him interviewed a lot of times. I think he is an extraordinarily bright guy. If someone like he were to get involved and were to open up uh, and compete against the guys who are out there today, I think uh, I think somebody, someone like that could do very, very well. Now, for, for you, when you've been hiring people, you said you mentioned you, you found an economist who had been the head of the economics department at his university. You found the guy who was number one guy at Caltech. You, it's not like you put out like a help wanted ad in the newspaper. Like, how did you find these guys? Well, uh, you know, I'm pretty successful at what I do, and most people are involved or have been attracted to sports in some way. Uh, a lot of them come to me, and you know, a lot of them I learn, you know, through the grapevine, so to speak, in the industry. And I've recruited some. I mean, it's been a combination of people who sought me out and people who I've sought out. And uh, again, I started doing this in 1979, so I'm a kind of a known commodity, and. Uh, and people who work for me, frankly, make a lot more money than they work for other people who work in the business. You know, you know, the uh, as an example, the you know, I mean, some of these guys I pay, you know, a million bucks a year to to do analysis and things such as that. So, you know, it's uh, you know, uh, I would say, you know, it's a combination of my success and uh, and again, you know, and the compensation and and. And, and and James, you know, my average employee in Las Vegas has been with me 12 and a half years. So, you know, we pride ourselves uh, in, in, in the relationship that we have with, uh, with the people that we work with. It seems like part of your success, too, is like reading the book, you, you have this charisma where you're able to meet just about anyone. Like people want to meet you and sit. Like, how did you like Carl Icahn is not known for having social dinners with people. And yet just out of the blue, you arranged to have dinner with Carl Icahn when he first comes to Las Vegas. So like, how did you kind of get a, a meeting like that? Actually, he arranged it with me. I didn't reach out to him. There was a guy named Dan Casella who worked for him. And Dan called me and asked me if I would have dinner with Carl. And I, I said, yeah, well, you know, I, I agreed to do it. And that's how he and I met. He was interested in handicapping and sports betting. That's, that's how he met. You know, it's funny. You mentioned Jack Bunyan earlier. And uh, Jack is, if not my best friend in the world today, he's certainly in the top two. Uh, Jack, you know, it was a few months ago. He, he said, Billy, you have the largest, most diverse group of friends of anyone I've ever known. And, and he's right about that. And I'm very proud of that. And uh, But I don't know. I've always kind of met people easy, James. And... Uh, and uh, I don't know, I, I can't answer it, but, uh, but the majority of my friends are people you've never heard of or you never will. Well, you know, Billy Walters, you know, author of the book, Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. This is definitely the, the best book on gambling I've ever read. Plus your story is just fascinating. It's, it's, it's riveting. They should make a movie out of this book. I'm sure you're going to at least sell the rights to for this to be a movie and it's going to, it's going to do very well. So I encourage everybody listening to this to, to read it again, not just for the gambling, but also Billy, your, your personal story and your, your tales on the way to success. And, and it's an inspirational story in, in an odd sort of way to, to say that, but it, it's a great book. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. James, thank you, and, and I've got an invitation to you. Uh, you come back to Las Vegas, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to get Jack Binion. I'm going to take you to dinner this time with Jack, and we're going to take you to, we'll take you to a little different restaurant. Not that 
you know, the one you went to wasn't great. But if you come out, we'll get Jack and the three of us. So we'll get to go and have dinner, and I've got a club. I've got a good one to take you to. I'm going to take you to Michael's at, at the South Point Hotel. Excellent. All right. I look forward to that. All well, right. thank you so much, Billy. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one 844 Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.